Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Please listen carefully. 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 Welcome back to Utterly Moderate, the official podcast of the Connors Forum for a Healthy Democracy. Do me a favor if you would, take 20 seconds, go to connorsforum.org and subscribe to our email newsletter in just one click. I'll wait. I'll be right here when you get back. I promise. (laughs) I'm Lawrence Eppert. I'm your host. I'm pleased to be back with you. I hope everybody is well as we head into this last stretch of summer here. So we've had all sorts of interesting episodes recently about the James Webb Space Telescope, about meteorology myths, about the Conger Ice Shelf. But unfortunately, we have to come back to the topic of the ongoing threat to American democracy. Now, I wish we didn't have to do this. I wish nothing more than to forget this ever happened and never talk about it again. But there's at least three reasons that I believe we must do so. First, I can't think of many things more important for Americans than remaining in a democracy, than ensuring that our democracy survives. So that's number one. Second, the weaknesses in our system that were exploited in 2020 for a nearly successful coup, they remain. They haven't been fixed. So the problems with the Electoral Count Act, for instance, they remain. Third, with each week we're finding out just how brazen and how dangerous the coup attempt was as new information keeps coming out. As one shocking example, and I'm sure many of you have read this story. If you haven't, I'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, But Maggie Haberman and Luke Broadwater in the July 26th edition of the New York Times, they didn't just corroborate the already overwhelming evidence that the former president and his allies attempted to coordinate a massive electoral college fraud across several states to claim with no basis whatsoever that he won states that he actually lost to President Biden. But Haberman and Broadwater have emails from the people involved showing that they knew what they were doing was wrong and it was illegal. I can't even believe this is true, but it's been verified. They themselves even called the electors fake. It's just unbelievable. It's brazen. It is chilling. One of the lawyers wrote in an email obtained by Haberman and Broadwater that, quote, we would just be sending in fake electoral votes to Pence so that someone in Congress can make an objection when they start counting votes and start arguing that the fake votes should be counted, end quote. Now, the article makes clear that all of the top people knew about this. The RNC knew about it. The entire Trump leadership team knew about it. Eastman, Giuliani, Meadows, Trump himself. They even implicated an employee of the One America News Network. It's just, like I said, it's brazen. It's unethical. It's illegal. It's chilling. It turns your stomach. And if you care about the rule of law, 
if you care about the importance of living in a democracy, this can't stand. We can't allow this to happen. We must hold people accountable. And the most important thing in my mind is we must fix the weaknesses that they were exploiting. So I have two major questions. First, are we going to fix these weaknesses? There's still major holes in the Electoral Count Act. Now, I hear there is a deal moving through Congress on the ECA. And so we'll see if that succeeds. We'll see if it is sufficient in shoring up the problems. My second question is whether our democracy is going to survive. Now, I've assembled my team of fellow pessimists. My friend Mario said I should call them my legion of gloom. And I I think that's a great name. So I'm going to call them that, my legion of gloom, to discuss this question. So here with us today is the very smart and very pessimistic Jonathan Last, editor and writer at The Bulwark, and Tom Nichols, well-known and admitted curmudgeon, former scholar at the U.S. Naval War College, and current writer for The Atlantic. Now, off the air, I asked Jonathan, whose nickname is JVL, and Tom to give me their own personal estimations of the percentage chance that similar attempts to undermine the 2024 election would occur and would trigger a long-term decline of American democracy. So what's the chance? JVL said 20% chance. Tom said as low as 33%, as high as 50%. I personally am near about 50% that 2024 is the beginning of a long decline for American democracy. So as you can tell, this is going to be a dark show. (laughs) I would turn back now if you can't stomach it. Uh, Turn it off. Go listen to something else, preferably one of our episodes. But uh, it's going to be dark. There's going to be flying monkeys talking trees, dogs and cats living together, just mass hysteria. So um, like I said, you've been warned, this is going to be dark, but Legion of Gloom, assemble. Welcome to the show, Jonathan Last, Tom Nichols. Welcome to the show, fellas. Thanks. Great to be here. All right. Well, in the intro to the show, I was joking a bit, talking about how dark the show is going to be. And I actually am being serious about that, not because I want to get clicks, not because I just want to get people to listen to the episode because it's, you know, provocative or whatever, but because things are actually dark for American democracy, really dark. Uh, We're in a bad spot. So Jonathan, Tom, uh, from your perspective, what are the biggest weaknesses in our system that we must shore up? Tom, you want to go first? Yeah, um, because I worked in state government for two and a half years. That's the weak link that everybody's not paying attention to, especially the Democratic Party. Um, The Democrats, and I'm going to just steal from Mark Alilla here, the Democrats have a daddy problem. They think that that controlling the presidency, um, that they get a dad who fixes everything from the White House on down, and it doesn't work that way. Um, Republicans have always understood that you start at the bottom and, and work your way up by voting in every local and regional and um, you know county state election. So the problem is that if there's a coup in 2024, the, the immune response that would come from the states has already been weakened by the fact that um, a lot of people simply never showed up for state legislative ex- um, 
elections. And, you know, I know Jonathan and I have both been hit by, you know, well, it's impossible. It's a structural problem. It's gerrymandering. It's vote suppression. People don't seem to understand that gerrymandering happens because you don't vote in state elections. And then a party controls the state house that then draws the district. Um, since about 2010, Democrats have just had a huge drop off. Um, and, you know, this is I'm going to take a shot at President Obama here. President Obama was not really good at taking care of the kind of national party from the White House, which presidents should at least try to do. And so after 2010, you get this huge drop off and Republicans become the dominant party at every level of government. People forget that the Republicans were trolling, controlling something like 31 governor's mansions at one point. Um uh, um, most seats in most state legislatures. That's the weak link. If you really want to stop this thing, um, if you want to, for example, defend uh, abortion rights, it's going to happen at the states now. And people keep thinking, well, if we can just keep Trump out of the White House, that fixes everything. No, that won't fix everything. That's That's a necessary but not sufficient condition to prevent another attempt at a coup. Jonathan, weakest points in our democracy for 2024. Yeah, I mean, the weak point is that you can carry out a coup legally. I mean, that, at which point, it, you know, is it even really a coup? Do we need another word for that, right? And this is, mm. you know, the Electoral Count Act has, has sorts of holes in it. I, I say this all the time. What we have discovered is that this entire system is really run on the honor system. I love and, that line. I've heard you say yeah, it a few times. You know, and it, this is the case, you know, both all the way up at the federal level, but is true at the state level, right? If states can pass laws, as some states have tried to do in the last 18 months, uh, laws which empower the governor or the legislature or a combination of the both to simply toss out the results of an election, and then they were to do that, is that a coup or is that no? That's just law, right? This is, and this is what people. This is a distinction which is not often made, right? There is there is the rule of law and the rule by law. And what you get in autocracies is the rule by law in which, you know, the, 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 the supreme maximum leader needs something. And so he says, yeah, well, we'll just make a law that this is the way it'll be. Uh, and then he says, yeah, well, see, it's not my whims. That's the law. And that is sort of where we've we've headed with the Republican Party, where they're they're looking to create laws which allow them to get the outcomes they want. And this is really weak. And as, as Tom says, you have to be able to counter that at the, the lawmaking level state, statewide. And uh, Democrats haven't been very good at that. Uh, but also, it's, it's hard to do that, right? You need like what you need is the kind of motivation that really only comes from crazy people, which gives the crazy people an advantage, right? Because this is, you know, like... Only somebody who's really obsessed with this stuff uh, can get it up to to organize at the level which is required. The rest of us just want to like live our lives, and it, and that's a weakness. And and it's hard to do that. I just I just want to you know um, back up something Jonathan's saying here because it's hard to do that because at the state level, for example, to make those laws, most people don't walk into the legislative chamber on the assumption that they have to make laws because the other half of the chamber is crazy. That's yeah. not that doesn't come naturally to state let like it's like, hey, we should put in a law that says that you can't just, you know, um, randomly 
invalidate elections because you think the Italians are beaming messages from <laughs> space into Venezuelan voting machines. Nobody well, Tom, thinks you're not, you're to not, do that. You're not paying attention to the internet like we are. Well, Tom. you know, that, but I mean, a legislator just doesn't go in and say, hey, maybe I should, maybe I have to shore up the system today from people who are completely delusional. It's not a natural uh, reaction. But the other thing, you know, to emphasize here was, was uh, JVL's point about, um, the law, you know, I can't think of the Latin American dictator because I'm bla- Jeopardy champ is blanking on a trivia question, but the, it reminds me of the Latin American dictator whose whose maxim was for my friends, everything for my enemies, the law. And, mm-hmm. you know, this I mean, I studied the Soviet Union for years. Soviet Union below the level of political crimes actually had a very detailed legal code that more or less functioned like. You know, because authoritarians are really good about writing everything down and and uh, making you know sticking the the veneer of legality on everything. And unfortunately, you know that's not the the American Constitution is really kind of short as constitutions go because the founders said, "You're decent people, you'll figure it out." And we're not doing that anymore. We're not. I think the problem is we have a lot of very indecent people who aren't taking advantage of that. All right, let's talk about two weaknesses in particular, the ECA and this independent state legislature theory. So on the ECA, Kimberly Whaley, who's a University of Baltimore law professor and frequent guest on this show, she explained to us that, quote, there are massive holes in the Electoral Count Act. It is stunning that there is nothing requiring states to count the popular vote. That is not democracy. If this is not addressed, state legislatures and or Congress can steal the next election. The future of our republic is at stake, end quote. Uh, in addition, the Supreme Court has said they will listen to a case about this independent state legislature theory. I don't care if we start with that or at the ECA, but Tom, I think you want to start with the uh, state legislature theory. So tell us what is this theory and why does it matter? Well, the idea here is that the legislature, the state legislatures are supreme. The, co- the, the Constitution is silent on, you know, more or less silent on how states can pick electors. The problem is there's also things like the 14th Amendment and, you know, a lot of other things about how people can vote. But what the Supreme Court, and let me just, you know, um, go off on this Supreme Court for one second to say, oh, we're originalists. We're we're just, go, you know, going by the document. We're just throwing it back to the states. We're not coming up with any innovative legal document uh, doctrines. This is a pretty innovative legal doctrine. Um, if they simply say, you know what, if the if the state of Florida, the state of Iowa decides that, um, you know, that uh, they're going to choose the president by, you know, with a game of spirited game of tiddlywinks, um, you know, that's really none of the federal government's business. Well, it is the federal government's business. I mean, we are a federal state and we have to protect something like, um, you know, something that we would think of as voting rights. And the idea that the Supreme Court can just say, no, if you, if you can, if you can engage in enough chicanery to get, and going back to Jonathan's point, right, about get legal control of a particular process, then everyone is helpless after that to, to object to it. That is an incredibly dangerous doctrine. And it basically, I, I think, you know, as an old John Adams, Federalist. Um, I, I hate every bit of it, but I think, as I said recently in a piece, I think all declines in American life are going to be announced with the preface of in a six to three decision. So you so before I get to Jonathan, you, you believe the Supreme Court will allow this? 
I don't know if they'll allow it, but the fact that they're even considering it tells you what a radical court this has become, that, that you know, this shouldn't have even made it this far. It's scary. Jonathan? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, one of the things which I think people have slowly finally realized that the Supreme Court isn't bound by anything. They're just bound by doing what they want, right? And, you know, when, when they wanted to legalize gay marriage, it's like, look, we're legalizing gay marriage. Uh, when they wanted to let Obamacare stand because Obamacare, you know, because reversing it would have imposed political costs on the court itself. They just did it. Well, they wanted to reverse Roe v. Wade. I mean, different courts, right? Coming to different, but they just want to do this thing. And I, I think that if a case wound up before the Supreme Court, which in which essentially the stakes were, uh, a, a state has decided it's going to simply overturn its votes and cast its electoral votes in another direction. And that would determine the outcome of presidential election. I think the Supreme Court would probably say no, uh, but not for any legal philosophical reason, just because you know, that's what they want. Like, it seems reasonable. Look at you now, being Mr. Is, Optimist guy here. No, but, <laughs> but this is why this is why the, the big lie is so important, though. Right. Because. I mean, you lost the first election by 3 million votes, the second election by 7 million. That's an enormous margin, right? And, and the, but he can't admit that, right? Everything has to be not just like, his argument was not actually in these four states, we got 70,000 more votes than people think no, I, we did. I won by and 10 we million. Won. His, his argument is I won by 10 million. Right. <laughs> and, and the reason that that's important is because that is what provides the legitimacy in order for him to demand that any means available be used. And, and this is, you know, it, it all comes down to what authoritarians do, right? They deny reality and they insist that reality is what they're, what they're insisting it is. And for me, when I, the root cause of all this is not Republicans. The root cause of all this is not Donald Trump. The root cause of this is the American people who are mm. decadent. And, <laughs> and the, how come the, when I say that people get mad at me? You wrote a whole book about it. So. <laughs> <laughs> the, the truth is that, you know, you got like 40% of the country who looks at this and says, yeah, I think Donald Trump did win by 10 million votes, which is insane. It's still 75%. It's of the just insane, the party, by the way. right? I and mean, that's but that, right. But, you know, 40% of the, the country at home. home. Yeah. yeah. And well, but, but like, but, just but, how does anything function like that? But, to, to you know, it's it is 75% of the Republican Party, Lawrence. But then on the other side, and I'm not both sides in this, both sides are not equal threats to democracy right now. Um, but then you have primary elections, even now, among Democrats, where you're getting 12 and 15 and 17% turnout. I'm sorry. I thought mm. this was an existential battle for democracy. Yeah, treat and it seriously. Right. Primary elections yeah. are where you take people with you to show them where the elect, you know, that's a good dry run for voting in the general election. Um, the youth vote is there. We're patting ourselves on the back because at the moment of ultimate crisis, Two years ago, the youth vote rocketed up to 50%, which is to say it only finally lagged the general vote by about 18 points or no. 16 points. I mean, come on. At some point, if you are, if you really believe we're in that much danger, 
then you have to act like it. And you have to say things like, I'm going to vote based on nothing else but the danger to democracy. That means I might not get my student loans forgiven. That means I am going to just, you know, understand that inflation is not going to get fixed overnight if, the you know, we change parties. I am going to be an adult about this and I'm going to do some adulting and I'm going to vote to save democracy. And, and instead, it, it has, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm laughing because JVL comes around and saying the American people are definite, decadent, stupid and weak. And I'm like, I, I, I gently phrased that in an entire book and I still had people mad at me. Um, Go to Amazon.com know. and buy uh, our own worst enemy right now. It's on, it's on sale, by the way, so you can get it cheap. Um, <laughs> Prime day. It's Prime, yeah. Um, but, you know, this is, this is where I'm always saying that Jonathan is my spirit animal because, you know, he just said it right out loud. And it's not, we're still a good, I mean, I feel like I'm going to do the Marlon Brando speech from Superman. They are good people, Kal-El. They wish to be. Um, <laughs> but... <laughs> Which is why I've sent them you, my only son. Um, but but it, can you do the rest we, of the interview in that voice, please? <laughs> we are we are good people, and we have a great reserve of decency in us. But if we need to turn off the goddamn television for ten minutes and and figure out you know what what we're about and where we're going to go vote, and we just I think millions of us. In every party and of every persuasion, just don't bother with it in part because I think, and Jonathan, I think there was something on the bulwark about this at one point, because we have this ridiculous faith that, well, things just work out. It'll just be okay. I know this is bad, but we always muddle through and it'll be fine. And it's not going to be fine. The Overton window is real. Yeah, that is one of the one of the other lessons I've taken from the last few years. Right when when Donald Trump was was first in the the campaigning for the White House, one of the things many of his critics said was, uh, "It is too dangerous to let somebody this dumb and with this lack of impulse control into the White House because what if some unforeseen bad thing happens? How can you trust that he will?" manage it in a semi-competent way. And people say, well, no, everything's fine. Everything runs on its own. We get a once in a century pandemic and uh, a million Americans die. Many, many, many thousands of those uh, unnecessarily because of the way he handles it. So people get, you know, so there is a concern. Mere 36 months later, we get an, a perfect illustration, like a storybook illustration of why the concern was valid. And what the the consequences of that that concern being flouted were, and yet people are already on the next thing, right? The Overton window has shifted. We get people saying Donald Trump may not uh, may not concede the election. People say, "Oh, you're ridiculous." Mick Mulvaney's in the the Wall Street Journal. Of course, he will concede the election with grace. The way we then get the the first insurrection attempt, the first coup attempt in the history of our republic, and yet people just moved right on. This is and. Uh, what I'm describing, I think, is a, a, a psychological problem as, as much as a anything else. Uh, it does not seem like there is any any tipping point, right? There is no tipping point. It's just a lever that extends out into infinity. And the fulcrum is always somewhere out there on the horizon. And I don't quite understand that. I feel like that may be new in in the American character, but maybe not. Maybe, I don't know. I feel like, you know, when Pearl Harbor was bombed, like people tipped over when nine 11 happened, people tipped over and started caring about stuff. Uh, I, I don't quite get it. Maybe you guys have theories on this. It's affluent. I mean, I think part of it is affluence <clears throat> when, you know, nine 11, you have a very tangible I mean, COVID happened in slow motion. 
And part of the problem, and I, I will raise my hand here and say, I was part of the problem of saying at some point when people wouldn't get vaccinated, um, I detached from that problem and said, if you want to, you know, it's like it's like people who want to, you know, skydive with faulty equipment. If you want to jump out of a plane and see if you make it, that's your problem. Um, but 9-11 happened and it caused that real raw sense of threat. And I, one of the things I remember about 9-11 is how nice we all were to each other for a few weeks after that. I mean, I, yeah. I actually remember that, that we we really cared about each other. We really, you know, just little things, nodding to each other in a store, or letting each other out in traffic. I mean, I, I saw that happen. Um, but but now, you know, well, Donald Trump tried to execute a coup. Well, and yet I went to the gas station and gas is a little pricey and there's still 15 different flavors of Doritos on the rack. And you know, TV is still on. And, you know, what does that really mean to me? My life will go on. Um, and because they, because by the time the cost of something like Donald Trump's coup becomes obvious, it will be too late. So it's just this frog boiling exercise because you are surrounded by so much affluence that nothing really seems to matter. But you know what, though? 9-11 didn't impact most people, right? I mean, 9-11 happened in New York City and Washington. And so for people like you and me, Dom, who lived in those two metro areas, 9-11 uh, was a big deal. But if you were in Indiana or Wisconsin or Florida or California or Nevada, 9-11 didn't touch your life in any meaningful way, but it mattered to you psychologically. And it's interesting you said because I was I was still – I had already moved to Rhode Island by, by 2001. And <clears> – <throat> We have a military base here. We have a Navy base, you know, where I work. And people in this little island, I live in, were freaked out. Somebody called. We had guys in hazmat suits at the local Shaw's supermarket because someone found, wait for it, white powder in an aisle on the floor of a supermarket. <laughs> because, you know, wow. Hey, the anthrax, never, right? The well, anthrax going through the mail. Yeah. You know, my my vet, my first wife was a former um, um, intelligence analyst. And she was like, she kind of shook her head and said, yes, it's all it's all obvious. You know, the Senate, the, the, the you know, the World Trade Center and the Shaws and, and the Shaws. Yeah, but, the Shaws. but even we, because we lived near a reservoir that was near a military base, we bought a couple of cases of water just reflexively. Like we said, you know, can't hurt to just have some water in the basement. And it affected us. And I think it affected people. You know, when we're out there, I, I remember I was playing golf with some guys. We looked up and the sky, because we're right near the Warwick Airport, you know, the skies were silent. And the old guys playing golf in Rhode Island looked up in the sky and went, hey, this thing is no joke. This is real. So, I'm Jonathan, I'm going to take a little bit of, you know, issue with you here and say people across the country you know, and the ripple effect of knowing people who were affected by this went through the country of, you know, people whose kids went to New York or, you know, to D.C. and had a friend from school whose friend knew a guy. Um, with this, it's so political and you're and because your rights seem so um, untouchable until they're touchable. That's why I actually think the bigger effect than the coup on people has been uh, Dobbs, because suddenly it's like, hey, wait a minute. A state trooper might actually stop me from crossing state lines because I'm like a young woman. And, you know, wh what are we going to do? Set up, you know, pregnancy testing checkpoint Charlie's along I-95. Yeah. Okay. That 
these kooks are actually talking about it. It could happen. So I, I, I think there, but I, I still think that affluence problem is a real problem that the, in your day to day life, you just, you're not seeing how your rights get taken away when somebody like Donald Trump shows up and says, I'm just going to overturn the vote. And I'm, uh, I'm, I'm terrified that nobody's going to think of that with the Supreme Court deciding that, you know, if you can take over a state legislature, you can functionally end democracy one state at a time in American federalism. All right. Let me ask you guys a question about our society pooling apart. I'm not sure civil war is the right term, um, but it does feel like we're in the middle of something of a cold civil war between social groups and society. What I mean by that is. You know, so many people nowadays, they curate their social networks on Facebook, even in their own um, everyday lives where they just don't talk to people who have different opinions than themselves. Uh, we move to different areas of the country based upon the fact that we want to live with certain types of people. Um, we have different uh, sources of information, different sources of news, different standards of evidence. Uh, it feels like we are living in very different worlds very different um, ideological silos, ideological bubbles, and that those spaces are moving apart. So am I off base here? I mean, what are you thinking about this sort of idea of a of a cold civil war going on? Yeah, well, you know what? They ought to be doing that at the state level because we, as Thomas said, we are entering a place that we haven't been in since the 1970s where the state you live in is going to determine to some reasonable extent the what sort of rights and protections you have as a citizen and uh you know like i don't know i if, if i was gay i would not want to live in a very red state right now i would not be convinced that uh my rights were going to be guaranteed there in perpetuity and this is like and this is weird right we, we just came from a place where the whole idea was like you can live anywhere like you can do your job and have the same kind of like homogenized experience you could shop at restoration hardware in wyoming just as easily as you could in california or maryland or virginia and uh i i think we're moving away from that actually yeah i mean i i've made decisions you know i i I'm working full time these days, but I retired from my government gig and I've made decisions about retirement and where I would go and where I wouldn't go based on political stuff. I mean, it's just places I don't want to live and where I don't want to deal with that crap. Um, and that I never thought of that as an American. I never thought about, you know, would it matter to me where, you know, as a political matter, what state I would be living in. But it, but it matters to me a lot now. The other reason we're in this cold civil war if you want to call it that, Lawrence, or this kind of cold war among our families and friends, is because of the existence of the internet and social media, where we know so much about what we think, what we all think about stuff. You know, I grew up, I was, I was um, 10 years old in 1970. And I remember people losing, dropping friendships and my parents losing friends in arguments about Vietnam. But I think we would have had the same problem in 1970 if everyone in 1970 had an Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter account, because you would just know too much. Like it took a cocktail. You know, when I was a kid, parents still had cocktail parties, right? People come over for a few beers, a couple of uh, highballs, which is what they call them in the 60s, you know, uh, they'd, you know, buy cheap gin and throw mixers in it and everybody would get you know, a little, little gassed. Um, and they would start having arguments about politics. That's when you found out what people believed about politics. You didn't go every morning and check to say, what does Harry down the street think about 
the Affordable Care Act. You just didn't know that stuff. And it kept the temperature down because you weren't constantly sticking political meat thermometers in each other all day long uh, to find this stuff out. Now it's unavoidable. Um, we just know. And it's also unavoidable when you walk in the house. If Fox is on, you know what kind of house you're in instantly. If MSNBC is on, you know already where you are. Um, it didn't, you know, in, in when I was a kid, it was not a big political decision about whether you watched Peter Jennings or Walter Cronkite. Um, but now we have all these little signals and flares that we send up. The People with their Trump flags on Trump trucks. I don't remember people doing that stuff when I was a kid. You know, you just didn't do it. It wasn't it wasn't a politics was not a performance art thing. Um, human, human interactions and relationships require a certain amount of mystery. Yes. And this is a thing. It's OK not to I, know things. Marriages require a certain amount of mystery between yes. uh, partners. Oh, God, yes. uh, I, I remember George Clooney talking about this, about how being a movie star requires a certain amount of mystery. Like you can't truly be a movie star. Uh, if everybody, if everybody in the audience knows everything about you, because then they know too much, you're too familiar. There's, you know, you don't actually look like you're 30 feet tall when you're on the screen. Uh, and this is true about politics. Like, look, you don't want to see your neighbor, your neighbor Bill naked. Like, like who needs to see that? You don't need to know what Bill thinks about every political thing either. Right. That, so. and yet we do. Yeah. All right. This next question has a big buildup. I apologize, but I think it's important. JVL, you and some of your colleagues at The Bulwark have argued that our system of government works on the honor system, meaning that the law doesn't spell out everything about how the system should work. We depend upon honorable people being in positions of power and interpreting the law in the spirit of the way that a democracy should work. But there's a lot of ambiguity. There's a lot of wiggle room. There's a lot of weaknesses, as we've talked about. And if you have less than honorable people in those positions... They can exploit that ambiguity, exploit those weaknesses uh, to anti-democratic ends. And so I want to talk about how less than honorable so many of these people in positions of power are. Mark Levovich was writing about his book, Thank You for Your Servitude, in The Atlantic recently. And he says that uh, he asked prominent politicians, like, why would they go along with being an authoritarian? And he says what he found was it's because it serves their purposes, power, status, attention, relevance. So, for example, Lindsey Graham, how does he go from being with a principled man like John McCain uh, and being a Trump critic to being one of his enablers? Uh, and he says that for Lindsey Graham, it was really about relevance. Leibovich says, quote, what would you do to stay relevant? That's always been a definitional question for DC's prime movers, especially the super thirsty likes of McCarthy and Graham. If they'd never stooped this low before, maybe it's just because no one ever asked them to. End quote. Leibovich talks about this joke in American politics. He says the, the joke is, quote, that Trump was at best not a serious person or a good president and at worst dangerous and potentially criminal. End quote. He said everybody in Washington gets this joke, Republicans and Democrats, but they go along with it for status, for power, for relevance, and for attention. JVL, one of your colleagues at The Bulwark, Tim Miller, has got a great new book out called Why We Did It, writing about his time as a political operative in Washington. He writes that the RNC would send out, quote, unconscionable mailers to every elderly conservative in America 
These letters were made up almost exclusively of hyperbole and ad hominem and conspiracies. They add absolutely zero to the political discourse, but they work in the sense that they are effective at keeping the olds upset so that they continue sending in their social security money, end quote. Uh, Tim Miller says at no point was it considered whether they should be spreading lies and slander, just how much money could be raised and how much bad press it might cause. It was all about winning, all about staying in the game. Now, I actually asked one of my friends recently who worked on Capitol Hill for years. I said, what percentage of Congress people really have no principles? They're just desperate to stay in the thrill of the game, acquire and maintain power and status, you know, stay in the spotlight, stay relevant, regardless of whether what they did helped or hurt democracy. Didn't matter, right? Just wanted status, relevance, stay in the game, etc. This person told me at least 51% and maybe as high as 80% or more are just in it for those things. Power, status, relevance, staying in the spotlight, etc. They also told me a disproportionately high number are probably sociopaths. Whew, so, <laughs> fellas, uh, if we have all these major weaknesses in our system just waiting to be exploited, and the one thing that is saving us is depending upon honorable people and not to exploit them, what hope do we have, given what I've just read you? Well, I think the I think part of the problem is that now the feeder for Congress is to have worked in politics and come from the staff or some political background. The days where I mean, my boss on the Hill was the heir to a food fortune. And, you know, he worked in the family business. He served in the Air Force. He became a congressman and then he became a senator. He, he did things before he went to Congress. Now it is, you know, the, this is now composed of people, um, to use a phrase that an old friend of mine from DC used to, always uses. They cannot, and Tim Miller has brought this up as well. They cannot conceive of a life outside of the Beltway ecosystem. Like that for them is a living death. Um, it's like, uh, Jack, um, Donaghy on 30 Rock when he says, Lemon, they're on LinkedIn. It's like being dead. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, the, for, to not be in the game, to not be, you know, near that center of power is just incomprehensible to them. Um, I had a falling out with someone in politics over Trump um, who thought the worst thing he could say to me is you're going to be irrelevant. Like that was the most terrifying thing you could think of. I'm sorry and, that you lost Lindsey Graham as a friend. Yeah, well, it, but I when the minute I saw that from Graham, I'm like, uh, that is, you can find a, th it's not an unusual thing. You can find a million people in politics who say, oh, the worst thing in the world is you're going to be irrelevant. You actually have to go work a straight job. You might actually not authoritarianism. That's not the worst thing in the world. No relevance. No, well, working and yeah. working a straight job for a lot. The other thing that's happened is you have all these political entrepreneurs who have figured out that if I get, jump into this and scare the. Sh out of old people and you know i'm a footman for some power i don't i don't have to go to an office and sit in, sit in a cubicle i'm special i'm slated for greater things i'm going to be important i'm going to do stuff it's the fredo stuff i i'm smart i know things um and i think that that has overtaken our politics i mean it's, it was always there you know politics always attracts a certain kind of sociopath but that i think it's just over overtaken us and it's overtaken us with a class 
of younger people who serve this class of older people, younger people, I mean, you know, 40-ish, 35, 40, um, who have now, have never had a life outside of that ecosystem, cannot imagine a life outside of that ecosystem. And the idea that you would, you know, leave that and move to Charlotte and, you know, teach or sell real estate or something, it's incomprehensible to it's, it's like that. It's like being dead. Uh, and so I think, you know, it's gotten, it's gotten worse. And I'll just put in a plug and say, Tim Miller's book captures this so beautifully through the eyes of somebody who got seduced by it. Yeah. He, he, he lets you cry just enough and then he'll give you a good laugh in that book. So one of the things I have a hard time getting used to is this, this class of performative clowns like Cawthorn and MTG and Bobert and who are like, we're there. Just voters. bring only PR people with you to DC. Nobody well, else. We're, and, but never, you know, they're look, they're all, as far as I'm concerned, one of those people is emotionally disordered in some way. There's something wrong with all of them. We're, what I don't understand are the people back home who say, yeah, they don't get anything done for us. There's no, they're not actually bringing home any bacon. They're not passing any bills, they're not filling any potholes. Nothing's getting done. But boy, the libs are sure owned. And that's all I care about out of politics. And again, I'm going to keep, I'm going to bang this gong one more time. That's the problem of affluence because it used to be that when your, your rep, you know, went to Boston or to Washington, they, you people back home said, Hey, I expect to see a, a bridge fixed. I expect to see potholes filled. I expect to see, you know, stuff happening. And because we live at such a high standard of living, it almost seems like impossible that it matters one way or another who's there because you're already, you know, pushing the pedal down so hard, right? That it's like you're already living in a place with good roads, basically good roads and basically, you know, with shopping malls and infrastructure and transportation. And it doesn't matter who your member of Congress is because the, there's so much money and it's spread out so much across the country that you can you think you can afford to send a clown like Bobert who's not going to do anything. You know, the which top is, of the, just the Maslow's <laughs> the top of Maslow's pyramid of, uh, of needs is lib owning. Right. We've, all, we've already got enough to eat. We've right. got the bridges are fixed. We've got we got good cars. We've got the mail is delivered. And so we're at the very top where the only thing that matters anymore for self-actualization is lib owning. Well, and it's I think um, in a political science way, since we are here with an academic um, program, um, you know, it's I think well, there was one political scientist who called it post material needs. That once you've satisfied all that stuff, it's almost like you're free to start. And, and this is something that happens across political ideologies, that you're free to start worrying about pronouns. You're free to start worrying about lib owning. You're free to start worrying about um, uh, uh, abortion, you know, cutting abortion restrictions with a fine you know, razor to see where the edges are, um, because you're not concerned about shelter, food, peace, war clean water, clean air, you know, it's like all that other stuff is solved. So let's fight about the stuff that's fun that may, that makes us feel like we're, you know, having a good time. And I think that is, uh, you know, the problem with that is at some point the system starts to unwind and become dysfunctional at the level of things like food and shelter and war and peace. Um, but again, too late for anybody to do anything about it. Well, Jonathan Last and Tom Nichols, our legion of gloom, you did not disappoint. I need to go have a beer. So uh, thank you so much for joining the program today. Thank you. Thank you. Happy trails to you. 
Until we meet again Happy trails to you Keep smiling until then Who cares about the clouds when we're together Just sing a song and bring the sunny weather Happy trails to you Till we meet again Trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails to you. Keep smiling until then. Who cares about the clouds when we're together? Just sing the song and bring the sunny weather. Happy trails to you. Good luck, and may the good Lord take a liking to you. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.